The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. And he says to them, when Jacob heard there was grain available in Egypt, he said to his sons, what are you doing standing around looking at each other? I love this. Joseph, Mr. Sympathy, Mr. <coughs> politically Correct. What's wrong with you boys? Just stare at each other. Get to work. I heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy enough grain to keep us alive. Otherwise, we'll die. This is a, a, an indication of the severity of the famine. Okay, so this isn't just a mild famine. It's not just you know, a little shortage of food. Uh, he says that, look, we're going to die. Okay, it was severe, severe, right? So Joseph's ten brothers went down to Egypt to buy grain. Uh, but Jacob wouldn't let Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin, go with him for fear some harm might come to him. And, of course, Benjamin was the direct blood brother of Joseph. Uh, we know from the Joseph story that uh, uh, Jacob was very fond of, more than just very fond, he's treated with very special care and attention his son Joseph. And now that mantle of specialness has gotten passed to Benjamin. And he's now uh, very overprotective of Benjamin. Uh, so, Jacob's, so Jacob's sons arrived in Egypt along with others to buy food for the famine in Canaan was severe. So you get this picture of this busy road coming in, you know, the uh, road from Canaan with many pilgrims, many people journeying to buy food in Egypt. And then it reminds us, it says, Since Joseph was governor of all Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people, it was to him that the brothers came. When they arrived, they bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. And Joseph recognized his brothers instantly. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where are you from, he demanded. From Canaan, the land of Canaan, they replied. We have come to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him. And he remembered the dreams he had about them many years before. Uh, dreams of them doing exactly what they're doing, bowing down before him, ruler of a nation. Uh, <clears throat> and Joseph recognized his brothers. He remembered his dreams. He said to them, You are spies. You have come to see how weak our land has become. No, my lord, they exclaimed, Your servants have simply come to buy food. We, we are all brothers, members of the same family. We are honest men, sir. We are not spies. Uh, if you read through this whole passage, we're not going to read through the whole chapter right now, but the word honest is used six times, okay? And it's a, the whole scene is quite ironic. I get this picture. Here's these guys who sold their brother into slavery and then lied to their father about it and have been living a lie for the past 20 years, okay? They've been living a lie. Okay, they are now standing before the guy they sold, right? And they're swearing, look, we're honest, <laughs> Trust us. <laughs> so yeah, I did that once. <laughs> it didn't go so well. Okay? We we're not spies. Yes, you are, Joseph insisted. You have come to see how weak our land is. Uh, sir, they said, so they expand the story a little more. Sir, they said, well, actually, there's 12 of us. Okay, here they're trying to prove their honesty. Okay, so they, they're up, upping their story. There's actually 12 of us. Um, we are your servants, all brothers, sons of a man living in the land of Canaan. 
Our youngest brother is back there with our father right now. And one of our brothers is no longer with us. <laughs> uh, can be interpreted in many ways. But Joseph insisted, as I said, you are spies. This is how I will test your story. This is how I will prove your honesty. I swear by the life of Pharaoh that you will never leave Egypt until, unless your youngest brother comes here. One of you must go and get your brother. I'll keep the rest of you here in prison. Then we'll find out whether or not your story is true. By the life of Pharaoh, if it turns out that you don't have a younger brother, then I'll know you are spies. You know, you kind of wonder, as Joseph saw his ten brothers, if he was thinking, why are there only ten? What happened to Benjamin? Uh, maybe he was thinking kind of worst-case scenarios. Did my ten brothers leave with eleven and manage to kill Benjamin on the way, lose him, sell him, right? Uh, he's worried about his brother. He's not trusting of them. Um, so Joseph put them all in prison for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, I am a God-fearing man. If you do as I say, you will live. If you really are honest men, choose one of your brothers to remain in prison. The rest of you may go home with grain for your starving families. But you must bring back your youngest brother. This will prove that you are telling the truth and you will not die. So they agreed to this. Then, speaking among themselves, they said, Clearly, clearly we are being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. We saw his, and I get these, this is, this is an amazing verse. We saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why we're in this trouble. Then Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen, and now we have to answer for his blood. Of course, they didn't know that Joseph understood them, for he had been speaking to them through an interpreter. Now he turned away from them and began to weep. When he regained his composure, he spoke to them again. Then he chose Simeon from among them and had him tied, tied up right before their eyes. Um, <clears throat> this story is a great picture, and, uh, and really a lot of the little cues, a lot of the literary cues in the story are all about uh, this family that is being haunted by a past they would love to forget, okay? They would love to forget. Uh, and it's true of the brothers who are trying to escape the horrible truth that they sold their little brother and are, are guilty of his blood. And I just love that picture, that image of them still over 20 years later, this image they have in their mind of their brother desperately pleading with them, desperately pleading with them. Talk about something to give you nightmares at night, okay? When you look back over your past, you see the, the cries of your brother desperate. No, don't do this. Right? Haunting them. Uh, for Joseph, uh, also has spent 20 years trying to forget all this. Right, 20 years of life, very hard, very miserable, uh, suffering great things. And uh, we get a picture of, of his struggle to forget as well, but still haunted by it. And we see it in the previous chapter when he names his children, right? He names his son Manasseh, meaning what? Uh, verse uh, chapter, uh, chapter 
41 to verse 51. God has made me forget all my troubles and everyone in my father's family. Well, the very fact that he names his son that is kind of proof that he really hasn't forgotten, right? It should be more like, well, I'm trying to forget my miserable past and my family, right? But it doesn't go away. He is haunted by the memories of his family and what they did to him and, and the suffering he's caused, uh, they've caused him. Uh, the next name, Ephraim. He names his second son Ephraim. He said, for God has made me fruitful in this land of my grief, right? So here's Joseph for all these years also haunted by this past, haunted by the reality of what has come upon him and who did it, right? And now the, the people he's been trying to forget are standing right before him bowing, right? Uh, even Jacob, as we'll see towards the end of the story, is still dealing with the haunting truth of, their, of this past, still hanging on to Benjamin, okay? Gripped and controlled by fear, right? Uh, because, uh, because of the loss of his son. And 20 years later, still not dealing well with the grief and loss of, of, of Joseph. Um, and the reality is that all of us have these kind of defining moments. Uh, we, we like to think of defining moments as those positive things in our life that, where we took huge steps forward to do the right thing. And certainly, you know, all of us got here by positive choices, by responding in obedience to God. And those are defining moments. Uh, getting married, making wise choices about your family and your career, and making the choice to follow and serve God. Those are turning points for sure. But also it is true that all of us have defining moments in our past that are not so positive. The reality is all of us have a past or a history, and much of it can be very haunting. Right? Uh, the reality is, you know, at least probably most of us have sinned. Right? Anybody sin? Does anybody have skeletons, right? That, you know, you, you, you hope that when you get to heaven, like my, my you know, my... my Nightmare of heaven is that when you get to heaven, in order to give praise and glory to God, there's going to be movie night. And one of those nights, they're going to feature me and all the things I, I am just to- horribly ashamed of, right? To show how God's grace has covered it all. Like, oh, please no. Right? There are skeletons in our closet, right? There are things that we are ashamed of. There, there is sin in our life, right? Uh, there are the things we have done, but also, like Joseph, there are the things that have been done to us that oftentimes are also defining moments. Uh, sin uh, is, is damaging for the person who does it. It's also hugely damaging for those sinned against. Uh, Joseph had suffered incredible loss, uh, and his life certainly had been redefined by the sin of his brothers. Right? Um, those are defining moments. Um, of course, for Jacob, too, the, the scar of losing a child, right? The grief of losing a child, a defining moment in his life. Um, up to this point in Jacob's life, he was identified as a man who, with whom, uh, who walked in God's presence. Repeatedly in the Jacob account, it talks about God being with Jacob. And, God, and, and Jacob walking with God, Jacob meeting God at Bethel. But after the loss of Joseph, there's none of that language. And you see uh, Jacob living very fearful, very pulled back, 
very much hanging on to the one dearly loved son that's left, right? Um, it was a defining moment in his life as well. So we all have these. We all have these things in our past uh, that, that can haunt us, that can uh, years and decades later still be plaguing us. Uh, I, I was never made more painfully aware of how, how true this is than the years that I worked as a counselor. And, uh, you know, people don't come to counseling f- for stuff that they're going through now mostly. When it comes down to it, people go to counseling because they are haunted by things in their past, both that they have done or that's been done to them. Um, And what we see also in this passage, so they are all haunted by different things. Um, What's interesting also is that time does not heal all wounds. You ever heard that saying? Oh, time heals all wounds. You know, you'll get over it. Just give it time, right? Okay, over 20 years have gone by, right? It's a, it's a fallacy that time heals. Time does not heal. Right? Now, God's healing and the healing that can come to us often takes time, but it's not time itself that heals. In fact, if you don't face up to problems, if you don't find healing, time itself can become a prison. Okay, time itself can be part of the problem because you realize that you know a year has gone by, four years have gone by, ten years have gone by, and the pain is still there. Right? And you realize, you know, for, for his brothers, 20 years have gone by. For Jacob, 20 years have gone by. And he still desperately misses his son. These brothers still see the face of their brother. And the thing is, time becomes its own tyrant. Because we know every morning I'm going to wake up and that's going to be there. Time has not healed it. It has not gotten better. It hasn't gone away. It's not leaving and we see time stretching out before us. And we go, you know, where is the relief? Where is the hope? Where can I go to get rid of this? Time does not heal all wounds. It doesn't just go away. And the reality is, day by day, we are haunted by our past. And that's certainly true in this story. And again, uh, you know, it would be tempting to say, well, you're just reading your psychology into it. But actually, if you look carefully through a lot of the, the literary cues in this passage, it's very much what the author is trying to communicate. He's, he's saying, look, time has gone by, and, and things have changed for Joseph. And we'll see this as the story unfolds. For Joseph, obviously, things have changed. He's no longer a prisoner. He's no longer a slave. He's not ruling a nation. And we see in Joshua... In Joshua in Joseph, <laughs> too many J names, we see in Joseph, uh, you know, he, he has found some healing, right? And there is some maturity in him. But for his brothers and for his father, we see 20 years that have gone by largely unchanged. Right? So time does not heal. Um, and here's the problem. Uh, God has given us a wonderful gift called pain. Do you guys like pain? I hate pain. This morning, I stubbed my toe. I think I kind of dislocated my little toe. It really hurts, right? And uh, I don't like pain, right? I love drugs that eliminate pain. But pain is actually a good thing because uh, pain causes us to do something about it, right? Uh, If if we have broken a bone or if we have a fever or we have some other stomach problem or whatever, we go, hey, there's something wrong, right? And it hurts, 
And I don't like it, so I'm going I'm to find help. I'm going to find the cause. I'm going to find the, the source of the problem. I'm going to fix it. Well, God has given us physical pain to do that for our physical body. He has also given us emotional pain to deal with this kind of stuff, right? And it's part of God's design for us that when we sin, we feel guilt. We feel shame. We feel pain. And you see this with the brothers. I mean, these guys are squirming, you know, and when they're seeing what's going on, they are squirming, right? You see with Joseph, dealing with the agony of what he has gone through. You see with Jacob, he's in pain. He is tormented. At the end of the story, he, uh, you see this picture of this guy captured in grief. Okay? That's actually a gift from God, and as painful it is, it is God's gift to, to help us move past uh, our past and find healing in it. But here's the deal. Uh, unlike physical pain, it's quite possible to live... Um, with emotional pain that we do not deal with. Uh, in fact, most people get stuck here, and this is where all these guys are. They're all kind of stuck. Uh, dealing with the emotional pain and hurt of their sin and their trauma and the abuse. Uh, and instead of getting help and finding healing, they have taken the path that many people take. Uh, they just kind of stuff it, right? They, the reason it's a skeleton in the closet is because we put it in the closet, Right? We have locked it away, and we're trying to pretend it doesn't exist. Okay, now I've, I've experienced this many times firsthand. I'm quite good at this. It's called denial. And when something bad happens, when you, you, know, you don't like something about yourself, you, you realize you're actually quite a jerk, and you say things that just, you know, you don't like about yourself, the easiest thing to do with this is to just pretend it didn't happen, Right? You just stick it in a closet and you move on and you tell yourself things like, time heals all things. I'll get over it. Right? I'll get over it. Right? And you move on. And you pretend there's nothing wrong. Right? And uh, it seems like a good enough plan, right? You guys like this plan? I love this plan. You just pretend. You pretend you're tougher than that. Or you pretend it really didn't happen. Or you pretend I can handle it. Or it wasn't really my fault. Right? And you just shove it away from memory and away from sight, and uh, it just goes away, right? Right? Well, kind of, right? It goes away, but the emotions don't, right? The emotions don't. The things that, the, the pain, the, the things that trigger those emotions stick with us and uh, plague us. And so now we put the event out of our mind, but what we do is we have this gnawing sense of guilt, this gnawing sense of shame, this gnawing sense of failure, this gnawing sense of being not a very good person. Right? And uh, I, I, I experienced this for, for many, many years in my spiritual walk. After I be, had become a Christian, I just could not believe or accept God's forgiveness. Now, theologically, I knew, I knew it was true. I knew God had said, you know, Jesus died on the cross and he forgives your sins. and It's all better now, right? But because I had never pulled those things out of the closet and let God actually forgive them, and in a salvation sense he had, but in an emotional sense, I never dealt with those things. And so I could never feel or sense the release of forgiveness. Right? And I would always say to myself, the, you know, God, deep down inside, I wouldn't say it, it was more of a deep sense or feeling. You know, I just don't feel forgiven, Right? That's because we can put the event away from mind. We can bury it as deep in the ground as we can. But the feelings don't go away. 
And so I love it. 20 years later, the, and, and I think this is what happens, you know. When you feel a sense of guilt, every bad thing that happens to you becomes what? Some kind of judgment from God, right? Now, is every bad thing that happens a judgment from God? Well, it is if you're guilty, <laughs> okay? It is if you feel guilt. It's like, oh, I deserve this, okay? God's out to get me, right? And that's what they say. See, we're, we're guilty. We are being punished, Right? Um, see, it doesn't go away. Those feelings remain. So how do people deal with this gnawing sense of feeling? This is what happens. We, we, we accumulate and pile up these skeletons in the closet. And some of us have lots of closets and lots of cupboards, lots of places to hide these things, right? And again, whether it's what we have sinned against others, it's what others have sinned to us, when we deny it, what happens is we forget the events, we can shove them out of mind, but we have this growing sense of unease within us. And so we walk around with these emotions of guilt, of depression, of sadness, of inadequacy, of failure, and on and on and on and on, of being no good, of hating ourselves, And there's just this constant roar of these feelings that we're constantly trying to push down. Um, so how do we deal with those roar of bad feelings? Well, mostly by some kind of distraction. Right? We try to escape. So for Joseph, he had kids. Well, I have kids. I got kids now. I got two boys. I love my boys. They're great. They bring me joy. Right? And so I'm going to name them. This boy is helping me forget all my pain. Right? But does it work? Well, you know, he was happy with the kids for a while, but does it last forever? No. It doesn't last forever. We come up with distractions. And most of our distractions take the form of some or other kind of addiction or diversion. Right? So people in the world, maybe people in the church, drink too much. Right? Why? Because when you get drunk enough, you forget. And you're too numb to feel the pain. Or you do drugs because it gives you a moment of escape. Or maybe as Christians, you know, we know we're not supposed to be alcoholics and drug addicts. So we have our own kind of more sanctified addictions. Right? Unhealthy obsessions with things like food, sex, Work, exercise, shopping, right? Uh, and some of these can be done in ways that are legal, that maybe are okay in the church or not so okay. But why do we do these things, right? Why are we obsessed with these things? Well, it's a distraction. We want to distract ourselves from what? The pain that's constantly gnawing at us. It's constantly digging at us. Um, trying to play, uh, escape the plague of feelings. Um, but it doesn't work. Uh, you can cover the pain for a time, but when it wears off, the pain is still there. All those, at best, are temporary distractions from the emotional problems. Until you deal with the root cause, it doesn't really help. Um, I'm going to look real quickly at three of the crippling emotions that these guys were dealing with, uh, kind of by class. In other words, by, by the source of their problem. So first you got the ten brothers, okay? Ten brothers. The crippling emotion for them, I would say overall, is guilt and shame. Right? When, you, when, when you are haunted by the sins of your past, the overwhelming emotional thing you will deal with is guilt and shame. Uh, you, will, you will have the sense that you are unforgivable. Uh, you will feel a sense of condemnation. And no matter how much you tell yourself that Spiritually speaking, you know, God saved you and He forgived everything, and you repeat First John one nine over and over again. 
and I confess my sins, until you really confess the real sins that are the cause of, of haunting your past, you will, you will deal with the sense of guilt and shame. Uh, that was certainly where his brothers were. Ashamed of what they had done. Um, trying to prove themselves as honest men, but deep down inside this gnawing sense that they weren't. Um, you know, how many of us live under this cloud, this dark, dark cloud of guilt and shame, that there's just this overwhelming sense about my life that I'm just ashamed of who I am as a person, right? If you feel that, the reality is you have not come to know the healing of grace and forgiveness. Romans 1 said, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, we as believers are not to be living a life under the continual cloud of guilt. Right? And if we feel that, okay, it's a sign there's something buried somewhere you need to go dig up. Right? There's something hiding, there's something haunting your past you have not dealt with. Uh, second one, second kind of class of emotion, uh, bitterness and blame. Uh, and this is this this is the class of emotions that belong to the person who has been victimized. Okay, you're not so much it's not so much what you have done to sin against others as much as how you have been abused or hurt or wounded by the sins of others. Okay, this is Joseph, <clears throat> and um, it's interesting throughout this, especially this chapter. Uh, Joseph kind of does some hard things. <clears throat> his first response to his brothers when he sees them is what? He speaks harshly to them. And the word that's used there is a very uh, aggressive word, right? Um, he throws him in jail. He torments him with this agonizing test, right? And throughout this whole thing, the narrator never really tells us Joseph's intentions, right? We don't really know why was he speaking so harshly to them. Uh, is it just a show? Is he just kind of putting up this front to, to test them? Or is there more to it than that? Is he ticked off? Does he throw him in jail for three days because he really wants to keep them there forever? Uh, does he initially want to put them all in jail and only let one go free because he really wants them to feel what it's like to be in prison in, in Egypt? We don't know. And what happens, if you read a lot of commentaries, which I have, what happens is the commentaries all read in what they want it to be, right? Well, we want Joseph to be mature and godly and a hero of the story. So it's interesting, the early Jewish commentaries back before Jesus' day, way back, way back, uh, they read it this way because they went... Uh, the ten brothers, not only they want Joseph to be a good guy, they want the ten brothers to be a good guy, they interpret this passage that there was no famine in Canaan. In fact, that the ten brothers went to Egypt to rescue Joseph. <laughs> okay? That's an interesting twist. Right? And so that's what happens when we, we start reading into what we want Joseph's intentions to be. The reality is it doesn't say. Right? It doesn't say. We don't know. Right? Uh, we do know that whether by Joseph's brilliant design or by him just kind of stumbling along this path that God was directing him on, it was a, a test, and it did become a means by which his brothers found healing and their family was reconciled and restored. Okay? We don't, the author never implies to what extent Joseph really knew what he was doing. Okay? Uh, I, and I think that's intentional. And I think the truth is, if we put ourselves in Joseph's shoes... You know, there's, he has to be struggling with bitterness. 
Uh, he has to be wrestling with this because that's the natural result when you are sinned against. You, know, you were sold by their, your brothers. You're put in prison. You're made a slave. It hurts, right? Your brothers. Uh, talk about feeling a sense of betrayal, right? Where's the love, you know? It hurts. And what's the natural response to that? Bitterness. You know, how could they do that? Blame. Look what those guys did to me, Right? And, and I have a sense that when, when they showed up, I mean, all these things start going through Joseph's head. Oh, man, how I am going to get back at these guys. They are going to, they are going to experience, right? And whether, you know, he, in the end, he doesn't give in to it, right? But I think it would be foolish to say he didn't wrestle with it, right? And maybe you've been there. Maybe for you, the thing that, the emotion that runs through your life is one of, of blame. You know, you find that whenever anything goes wrong, your first instinct is to blame, who, who did this? Whose fault is this, right? Uh, and just like the guilty person sees every event as, a, as an event of God's judgment, you see everything as being somebody's fault, right? And oftentimes that's a sign that you still are blaming, you're still bitter at what somebody has done to your, you from your past that they didn't have to pay for, right? So you have this extreme sense of justice. Somebody's got to pay for this, right? Even if it's not you, if you see it, Somebody else, you, 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 want to, you want to blame. You want to see people suffer, right? Uh, you, you wrestle with feelings of vindictiveness, right? Those are signs. Those are signs that you're being haunted still by things in your past. Well, lastly, uh, the last character of the story is, is Jacob himself. We see a little bit of his, his deal is that he uh, clearly has not... Uh, let go of Joseph. And you see it by his refusal, I mean, his, his overprotectiveness with, with Benjamin. And then at the end of this passage, the boys come back, they give this whole story. Um, you know, they get their grain, they're released, Simeon stays, the other nine go back. Um, and it says in verse, uh, verse 33, the man who is governor of the land told us, this is how I will find if you are honest. Leave one of your brothers here with me and take the grain for your starving families and go home. But you must bring your younger brother back to me. Then I will know you are honest men and not spies. Then I will give you back your brother and you may trade in the land freely. And uh, so that's the story they tell Jacob. Then it says, as they emptied out their sacks, there in each man's sack was the bag of money he had paid for the grain. Okay. Now if you're an average normal person and you go to the grocery store, and uh, you get home, and you got your bag of groceries, and your money's still in there. Uh, are you stricken with fear and panic? I'm thinking, well, that was kind of silly. They, they they gave me my money back, you know. I think they made a mistake, or or well, happy birthday to me. God's blessing me, right? Notice their response. Uh, the brothers and their father were terrified when they saw the the bag of money. And, Joseph, and Jacob exclaimed, You are robbing me of my children. Joseph is gone. Simeon is gone. Okay. I mean, poor guy's written off. You know, he's done. Right? Everything is against me. And Reuben said to his father, You can kill my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back to you. I will be responsible for him. I promise to bring him back. But Jacob replied, My son will not go down with you. His brother is dead, and he is all I have left. That kind of makes the other nine brothers feel good. 
Well, Dad, I'm glad you care. If anything should happen to him on your journey, this would send you would you would send this grieving white-haired man to his grave. Uh, here's Jacob caught in his own grief. Right? Uh, grieving is a natural process whereby we we mourn the loss of somebody, and when we make it through grief properly, we are able to let go and say goodbye. Well, Jacob is trapped in grief. He's he has not negotiated it well. He has not come to a place where he can let go of Joseph and say goodbye. He is still holding on. He is still, 20 years later, stuck in grief over the loss of his son. Right? Uh, maybe that's where you are. Uh, unable. Uh, you, you've experienced severe loss in your life, and you are unable to let go. You are unable to heal. Right? Uh, and again, it's not anything he did, but you can see how it's... You're kind of making him crazy, you know. They've only been gone for a couple of weeks. They come back. Simeon's gone. Jacob's writing him off. He's dead. Another son, dead. It's your fault, right? Uh, he's not dealing rationally. Well, that's where this story ends, and we're not going to look. The story obviously resolves in chapters 43 and 44, but let me just close with this thought for us as as people who live under under the gospel, people who... Uh, who have seen the end of this story and the resolution of the story in Jesus Christ. And uh, to help us do that, let me just uh, read from Isaiah 53. Uh, The good news for us, uh, the good news of the gospel, the good news is that there is healing, right? Jesus died, his death, his, his work on the cross was so that we don't have to be haunted forever by our past. Right? Now, and I believe that that healing only comes through Christ. And, and I believe that lots of people, millions of people in the world are spending tons of money going to see counselors to find some relief from their symptoms. But if those counselors do not point them to the grace and forgiveness that comes in Christ, the healing that comes only through Jesus, you know, the, the counselors are getting rich and... The crazy people are still being crazy because those emotions don't go away on their own, right? The, the pain can only be healed by the gospel, right? Um, so where do we find healing? Well, listen, listen, and just think through this as we think about Jesus and his gift for us. Isaiah 53. Uh, My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. Speaking of Jesus coming as a common man, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and he looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our grief he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. We could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed, right? Um, 
All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have left God's paths to follow our own way. Yet the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in mainstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. And, uh, you know, three things. Uh, Healing. You know, in Christ, he did take all our sins. And, And not only that, but in taking our sins, he took on himself the guilt and the shame and the sorrow of it all. Great picture in Isaiah 53. It's not that just he died uh, as a, a detached, distant sacrifice that was in no way personally involved. The reality is he was deeply involved. And he didn't just die a cold, sterile death. He died suffering incredible grief and sorrow. Right? He took upon himself the sins of the world and all that those sins bring with it guilt and shame, depression and darkness, right? He took those things. And here's the deal. If, you, if you're in the first category and you, you, you the, the skeletons in your closet have to do with the evil things you've done in your past, uh, Jesus wants to bring healing to those things and he does it through forgiveness, right? Then we know that this is not rocket science. But here's the truth. And... and uh, there is a sense in which Jesus' salvation covers everything, right? But there's another sense in which we grow into the experience of it by encountering personal forgiveness for our specific sins. And the deal is, until we face our past, until we own up to it, and we confess very specifically and very clearly and very directly, and we bring those things before the cross and say, God, I, I'm sorry, but I still feel the condemnation of this sin. I know you forgave it. I know, you know, I've heard this a thousand times, but the truth is, I still feel the pain of condemnation because of this. Right? And before God, say, God, I need to know, I need to experience forgiveness for this thing. Right? Until we bring those things out one by one and present them before Jesus, right? uh, we will not find the healing that he wants for us. In, in, in having a sense of being forgiven. Right? We as believers ought to come up to church on Sunday morning so eager to praise and celebrate Jesus because, not because we're condemned, but because we are forgiven. Because we know what it means to feel the burden and weight of guilt and shame, but we know the joy of having it lifted and carried away. Okay? And I pray that all of us have had that, that we have experienced that freedom. And that joy of going, I know I used to be there, but I don't feel that anymore because I know Jesus took it all. Right? Um, second category, those who have been victimized, who feel the bitterness and the blame. Uh, the healing that goes with that is, is the same. You go to the cross, uh, but instead of needing forgiveness, through the cross we learn what it means to be forgiving. Right? And the amazing thing, Jesus suffered all this thing. I love how it says that he was silent. Okay, what is that about? The silence of the Lamb on the cross. Uh, he went before Pilate. He went before, Her- uh, before the Sanhedrin. 
uh, he was silent. He gave no defense. Why? Uh, he gave no, he gave no uh, word against them. He did not fight or labor. He did not scream back at them. He did not shout threats. He did not blame. In fact, he said, Father, what? Forgive them. Judas comes to him to betray him, and he says to Judas, friend, friend. Right? Jesus was forgiving. And even to those who nailed him to the cross, he was gracious. He was forgiving. We need in the same way, if, if we have wounds that we carry, uh, that we just struggle with bitterness. Uh, the answer is in Christ. To go to him, the same thing. Bring that before Jesus. Say, Jesus, I know I'm supposed to forgive this. It is hard. I still feel bitter about this. I still want to see this person pay. Right? But Jesus, you were forgiving because you are full of love and grace. Help me to know the love and grace that's, that flows through the cross. And help me to be like that. Right? Help me to be that kind of forgiveness to those who have hurt me. And lastly, uh, the, the class of sin called grief. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Jacob had been a man who himself had wandered off and had fled for his own life, right? And had gone to his uncle Laban. And on that journey, he had experienced God's presence. And God met him and God said, I am with you, right? But it's interesting, many years later now, after the loss of Joseph, he can no longer see God's hand at work in the circumstances of his life, right? Uh, he can no longer see God's redeeming purpose and plan unfolding. And all he can see is that he's got to protect, he's got to hold on to, because there's no purpose or meaning, and life's out of control. And that's how it is oftentimes when we are in grief. You know, we feel like... Uh, we feel the pain that we're out of control and there's nothing we can do about it. We've got to hold on to everything tightly. We can't let it go. Right? Well, again, the same, the same thing. We, how do we deal with that? Well, we go to the cross. And in the cross, we see that, you know, in the most horrible things in life, God brings his greatest redemption. Right? God himself endured incredible loss so that we could have life. And... Uh, you know, if you're the disciples and you're standing before the cross, you think all is lost, right? Until three days later when Jesus rises again. And then there is new hope that God himself is greater and more powerful than death. See, Jacob needed to come to grips with that. He needed to come to grips with the fact that God was greater and that God would bring life where Jacob could see only death. Uh, and in fact... It was through the very loss of Joseph that salvation was coming to him at that very moment. He just didn't see it, right? He didn't see it. And one of the things we've got to do in the midst of grief is we have to have faith that I don't get it, I don't see it, but I know in the end God will make sense of everything. Right? In the end, it will be clear. And here's the deal. In the midst of grief, the question people crowd is, God, why? Why did you let this happen? And there's never a good answer for that. And, you know, if you're tempted to give answers, like, well, God has a good plan. All things work together for good. Don't go there, right? Because we're in the midst of grief, and you're going through this. There is no good answer. There's never a good answer, right? Uh, 
But we need to come to a place where we trust in God's goodness. That the God who would send His own Son to the cross, who would give up His own Son to express His love for us, in the end, He is a loving God who will bring about His best in our life, even when we can't see it, and it seems impossible. Right? Um, I pray and I trust and I know that for many of us we, we have had healing in these areas. And that really is why we should praise God. You know, we, need, we need to be filled with praise at His incredible healing. And those areas where there's still need or we're still being haunted, you know, pursue uh, the cross. Pursue the good news that Jesus can, can and will bring healing to those things in our life. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for the honesty and uh, the reality of Scripture that paints its heroes in very unheroic terms. And we just thank you for this picture of uh, the great patriarchs of Israel struggling, haunted by their broken and tattered past. And Father, it's just a great reminder for us who all carry the burdens of our past stuff we would love to escape from, stuff we wish had never happened, stuff we wish we had never done, and yet decades later they can be still influencing how we think and how we live and what we do, how we see you and how we experience our relationship with others. Uh, Lord, we praise you that there is healing for all that stuff. Uh, There is healing for all the pain and grief and bitterness in our life, all the guilt and shame. And Lord, we praise you that that that's what Jesus came for, Uh, that in cleansing us and washing away sin, not only does he wash away uh, the sin, but all of its effects and consequences. And that in, in you we can find true healing. But Lord, we have to be willing to face those things um, we have to be willing to dig them up out of their out of their tombs from which they haunt us, and we need to bring them to your feet and allow you to touch them by your grace and so I just pray right now, Lord, that uh, whatever any anybody's dealing with, Lord, that even now uh, as they bring those things before you, Lord that you would touch by the power of your spirit in a powerful way and bring healing through the blood of Jesus and the hope of the resurrection. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have the ushers come forward, please. And I would like to give us a moment to respond to what we've heard this morning. I don't think there's anyone in here that isn't impacted by the truth of what was preached. Um, And I, I just think it's important that we respond to what the Holy Spirit is doing in us at this very moment before we walk out the door. Um, so as the ushers um, just collect offering, I want to just give you this moment. And we're going to play through this, this next song. And the song is Majesty. Here I am, humbled by your majesty, covered by your grace so free. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.